Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we are taking another look in this episode at what is apparently my new favorite topic, I sent you an article last week and you were pretty thrilled about it. Yeah, I was. I'm I'm sorry, Sarah. I'm afraid you think I might be obsessed with this subject. Maybe you are a spy. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I were a spy. But really, I'm not obsessed with this topic. I just think it's really fascinating and there are so many different facets to it that you can look at. And we're going to get off of it soon or at least move on to something else Civil War related. But we couldn't do that without at least taking a look at this last or one other facet, I should say, of this, of Civil War espionage, which is African-American spies. And it appears as though many black Americans took an active role in union espionage during the war. Although, as we'll see a little later on, in most cases, there aren't a lot of records around now to tell us exactly what their individual accomplishments were. Yeah, and there are a few reasons for that. It's due in part to racial prejudice, but also because union spymasters would often destroy any record of their contributions after the war to protect the African-American spies. And then most didn't want their identities to become known in the first place, even after the war, because they feared repercussions if Confederate sympathizers ever found out about it. They had taken a big risk spying in the first place and, and didn't want to get caught after the fact. Yeah, the penalty was death. So it would be really bad if you were found out. But according to the CIA's Center for the Study of Intelligence, intelligence on the Confederates provided by African-Americans, which was known as black dispatches, was the, quote, most prolific and productive category of intelligence obtained and acted on by Union forces throughout the Civil War. So former slaves and free blacks alike participated in this. And Harriet Tubman is probably the most well-known name in this category of spies, although she's probably better known for her work with the Underground Railroad. That's how most people know her, I think. But existing records and books written by other self-proclaimed spies, in other words, white spies, give us information to substantiate about eight to ten more, including the person we're going to talk about in this episode, Mary Elizabeth Bowser. And we don't know that much about Bowser, including whether that was even her real name. Some people still question her very existence. But she was eventually inducted into the U.S. Army Intelligence Hall of Fame. So clearly some people believe in her contributions. Yeah, you can't tell her story, though, without talking about someone whose existence is definitely known, that of her union spy master, Elizabeth Van Lu, who started a ring of spies in Richmond. And with the help of Van Lu's story, we learn the generally accepted version of events concerning Bowser, too, and can explore the mystery surrounding her. Who was she, really? All right. So Mary Elizabeth Bowser was born into slavery in about 1839. And there's some questions surrounding her exact name as we mentioned, but it's likely that in those days she was known just as Mary or even Van Loo's Mary because she was the slave of John Van Loo, who was a wealthy hardware merchant in Richmond, Virginia. And the Van Loo's were a very prominent family. They were well-connected. They were well-respected. They had this huge mansion on the highest hill in Richmond. Things started to change, though, for the family after John Van Loo died, and sources differ as to when that was, 1843 or 1851. 
one. But it wasn't the wealth that changed. The family definitely inherited all of that. It was some of their social conventions and beliefs that started to change. Right. So after his death, the eldest Van Loo daughter, Elizabeth Van Loo, convinced her mother to free all nine of the family slaves, Mary included. And she also supposedly bought the relatives of those slaves and freed them, too. So why did she free these slaves? Well, Elizabeth had always had a sympathy for slaves, but she'd also been educated by a school in Philadelphia that opposed slavery. So that just reinforced her beliefs and kind of solidified them. Several slaves chose to stay on as paid servants in the Van Loo household, and Mary was one of them. Elizabeth, though, after being around Mary for a while, did recognize her intelligence and ended up sending her up to school up north in the late 1850s. We're not sure where exactly it was, but it may have been a Quaker school in Philadelphia. Mary did return to Richmond, though, before the war started, and according to a 2006 article in American History, public record does show that she married a free black man named William, or perhaps Wilson Bowser, in 1861 in St. John's Church, and that's where her last name of Bowser comes from. But she seems to have immediately taken up with the Van Loo household again. This time, though, it was to do a very different kind of work. Yeah, because after the war started, Elizabeth Van Loo really didn't waste any time contributing to the Union effort. She got permission to nurse wounded Union soldiers in Libby Prison, and conditions there were really pretty bad. She would visit regularly and assist the soldiers, you know, bringing them items like books and stationery and food. And she, in this way, started her spy efforts, too, because she would carry letters and messages in and out of the prison. And the way she'd do this was pretty clever. She'd hide them in books or in the bottom of a food pan and then relay those messages to Union officers. Sometimes she would just talk to the new prisoners, and they would tell her what they'd seen, and other times uh, they'd tell her what they had overheard from doctors or nurses or guards who were talking in the prison. So she had a lot of different means of communication going on within the prison, but also some cool ways to code her messages. Yeah, sometimes the books she carried out, for example, would have faintly underlined letters and numbers that formed a message when you put them together and read them all together. A little smarter than Bell Boyd's tactic of signing Bell at the end of her (laughs) Her early tactic, at least. Or the pages of the books would have tiny pinpricks on them that meant something. So the books were used in that way. But another tactic of Elizabeth's is that she would write letters that had coded messages written in invisible ink between the lines, and the ink would turn black if you applied milk to it. Sarah loves this one because she (laughs) used to be quite the connoisseur of invisible ink. I was kind of the treehouse spy in my day, and I did have some invisible ink, which which I used to great effect. But um, Elizabeth would carry the ciphered code for all of these messages in the back of her watch, which I thought that was really interesting, too, because who's going to take apart this uh, Richmond socialite's watch when she's leaving the prison? You know, just a, a real clever final detail for all of this. Yeah, and it's said that years later when she died, they actually found that code in the same place. So she kept it all those years, even after the war. Right. So when it became dangerous to send this information through the mail or through the post, Elizabeth set up an elaborate network with five courier relay points between her home and Union Army officers. And sometimes she would um, tear a message into pieces and have each piece delivered by a different agent to keep it hidden. Yeah, again, pretty amazing tactic. So, of course, others in Richmond noticed that this woman had clear union sympathies 
because she was visiting the prison and all of that, and they didn't approve. So to offset suspicion, she started up an act. She pretended to be crazy. She wore dirty, torn clothing. She left her hair uncombed. It got all matted. She would hum. She would jerk her head back and forth and carry on conversations with herself while she walked down the street. People even started calling her Crazy Bet. So nobody paid that much heed to what she was doing. Yeah, and again, to compare her to Belle Boyd. I mean, in that episode, we talked about how Belle used her feminine wiles to carry off her spine. Draw out information from from union men. Yeah, exactly. And Elizabeth has had to pretend to be crazy and, uh, you know, use all these secret codes, all these kind of involved tactics because she was in her 40s when she started spying and was a spinster, not necessarily considered that attractive. So she, she had, took a different approach. She did. Um, and it was a fairly effective one. Another thing that she did that was different from Belle, too, though, is that she didn't work alone. And probably the best known for is establishing this extensive network of spies in Richmond that the Federals dubbed the Richmond Ring. And it consisted of hundreds of spies that managed to work their way into pretty much every arm of the Confederate establishment, Libby Prison, the War and Navy Departments, Richmond Businesses, and with the help of Mary Bowser, into the Confederate Executive Mansion itself. All right, so we've got to explain the background behind that. It said that Elizabeth, perhaps through the recommendation of society connections, got Mary a job as a servant in none other than Jefferson Davis's household under the name Ellen Bond. And Mary, of course, was said to be intelligent. She had gone to school, but she also put on an act, just like Elizabeth in a way. She didn't let others know how smart she really was. She pretended to be kind of dim-witted, a little bit loopy, so no one in the executive mansion would think anything of saying important things in front of her. Yeah, up to that point, slaves in general were underestimated Though that started to change a little bit as the war went on. That was one of the things that really blew me away about this, this podcast too, that, that you would have to go through that transformation of feeling that people would be so confident to speak in front of their slaves at the beginning of the war, at least. Yeah, it's hard for us to imagine nowadays, but in 1863, General Robert E. Lee made a statement that I think was kind of a revelation at the time. His quote was, the chief source of information to the enemy is through our Negroes. I mean, people didn't even realize that their servants would be listening or would be taking in and interpreting the information that they were so freely giving out. Yeah, so... Apparently, Mary's tactic worked. You know, she made herself blend into the background, just kind of a a spacey young woman who was working in the house. And meanwhile, though, she was listening to everything she heard while she was serving meals in the presidential dining room. She saved scraps from Davis's wastebasket while she cleaned up his study. She would memorize messages that she read on his desk while she was dusting. And a man named Thomas McNiven, who was a Scottish baker in Richmond at the time and also a Union spy, and the one who gave us the only documented reference to Mary as a Union spy, said that she had a photographic memory so she could remember every word of the messages that she saw. 
Yeah, and the info that she got included things like troop movements, military strategies, treasury reports. And from time to time, Mary would meet up with Elizabeth near the Van Lu mansion to give her reports of what she learned. And then Elizabeth would come dressed as a country woman so that she wouldn't be recognized, basically. And it's said that McNiven, for his part, would sometimes serve as a courier for Mary, too. When his bakery wagon came around to the executive mansion, she'd pass information along to him, and nobody thought anything of it because it was just the baker coming by. The baker and the the servant picking up the goods. So Mary pulled off this act from about 1863 to 1865, and Elizabeth reported everything she found out back to Ulysses S. Grant. And it said at one point General Lee complained that the enemy received his directives before they even reached his own lieutenants. So clearly there was a pretty sophisticated spying system going on in Richmond. Yeah, and it's also said that Davis suspected that there was a leak in his house, but he never managed to really figure out who it was. But Mary must have felt the heat of suspicion because in 1865, she just disappeared. She fled the Capitol, and some even say that she may have tried to burn down the house on her way out the door. We're not sure if that's actually true. kind of call attention to your own flight (laughs) in a pretty bad way. But nonetheless, no one knows what happened to her. So after the war, Van Loo and the federal government destroyed all the records of the Richmond Ring to protect the lives of everybody who was involved. But again, that's why so many details of Mary's life are still very sketchy. So we mentioned McNiven uh, and how he gave us our only documented source of Mary's spying. But some people even feel that his account can't be trusted because he had this tendency to exaggerate. Nevertheless, stories about Mary did start showing up as early as 1900 in Richmond newspapers. And Van Lu's niece even revealed her name in an interview in 1910. So clearly some people knew who this was, and and they were talking about her well after the fact. Right. Bowser may have even left a diary behind, and it had reportedly been seen by the wife of her great-great-grandnephew as late as 1952 and would have been a goldmine of information about her life, potentially. But it was thrown away. We mentioned in the beginning that we weren't even exactly sure about what Mary's real name was because more recent research by scholar Elizabeth Varon, who wrote a book on Van Loo, suggests that Mary's name was actually Mary Jane Richards, and Mary Jane Richards was a Van Loo slave who was sent to be educated in New Jersey as a child. And after the war, Richards married this guy with the last name Garvin and went on to become an educator. And a couple of times in an interview and in a letter, she did admit to working in the Secret Service during the war as a detective, even though parts of her story contradict some other accounts of Bowser's life. So it's it's hard to say maybe the is the same woman, maybe maybe it's different. Yeah, maybe it does lend some validity to Bowser's story, though, the story that a person like her existed. After the war, Verena Davis, Jefferson Davis's wife, was asked about the espionage work of her former maid, Mary Bowser, and she denied that any of her Richmond servants could have been spies. And in 1905 letter, she even said, quote, I had no educated Negro in my household and really just flatly denied having hired anyone from Van Loo. So her response is considered kind of questionable, though, because she reportedly had a few servants on staff who were very well known and widely known around the area to be educated. So she may have just said this because she didn't want to admit that she had been duped by someone working in her household. Yeah, or maybe she wasn't even aware of what was going on in her household, didn't realize her 
own servants were educated, especially since we know Mary was putting on an act. Presumably, others could have been, too. And that's a good point. But as for Van Lu, Grant praised her after the war for her contributions. He said, quote, you have sent me the most valuable information received from Richmond during the war. So very high praise. And when he became president, he appointed her Richmond postmaster, a position that paid $4,000 a year. But after he left office, she lost that gig. She went on to work in the Washington Post Office, but eventually had to leave that, too, and then couldn't get work. Yeah, and by the time she died on September 25, 1900, at the age of 82, she was very poor. She was lonely. She'd spent all her money, all of her inheritance on her spy efforts during the war and helping former slaves after that. And in the end, the family of a man she had helped in Libby Prison came through for her. They gave her some income, but she still had no friends locally because of that controversial stance she had taken during the war. So kind of a sad ending to the story of a master spy, but interesting nonetheless. She certainly stuck to her principles. We can can say that for her. Yeah, she really did stick to her principles. She stuck to her guns and she really remained who she was. And I think that's a good spot now to move on to listener mail. We have a email here from Krista, and she writes, Hello, ladies. I've been a fan of your podcast for a while, but until now I haven't had a reason beyond thanks and praise to write in. I feel that you missed one major factor in explaining Australia's collective obsession with Ned Kelly. While most of us are recent immigrants with no convict heritage, we still appreciate a good, honest criminal. The reasons for this go beyond the Robin Hood syndrome that you mentioned. Ingrained in our culture is a contempt for authority. We love seeing someone stick it to the law. We love a joke at the expense of the rich and powerful, and we tend to cheer on the underdog. Perhaps to an American, this irreverence isn't immediately obvious, but understanding this larrikinism is a vital part of explaining why we pick such bizarre folk heroes and are generally uncomfortable with overt patriotism. I don't quite know how to explain the concept, but the larrikin is a strange figure who rears his sardonic head all through Australian cultural history, from murderous bushrangers to soldiers in World War I who refused to obey nonsensical orders from British command. Consider the song Waltzing Matilda, said to be something of an informal national anthem. It is a fairly ridiculous song about stealing a sheep or a shearer's strike. It's worth checking out simply for an explanation of the old Aussie slang. I really liked this letter because I had never heard of Alarican before. No, neither did I. So I immediately went and looked it up. And it's a kind of cool concept, I think, to have as kind of just a national idea. It adds something to my understanding of Ned Kelly, too, for sure. The other main email we got about the Ned Kelly podcast was telling us about all of the movies. So... (laughs) We should have a viewing party one of these days with the Heath Ledger movie. There's a Mick Jagger one, which has generally been uh, panned panned by most of our <laughs> listeners. So, um, yeah, we could just have a Ned Kelly marathon, it seems. Yeah, we should do that. So thanks for the movie suggestions, and thank you for the vocabulary lesson. It was awesome to kind of learn that new concept. Um, if you have any other movie suggestions for us, episode suggestions, any more spies you want us to focus on, even though Sarah may kill me if we keep along <laughs> the spy route much longer. Although you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed she? it. She's enjoyed it. So send us more spies if you want to. We're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com or you can look us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. Yeah, bonus points if you write 
a suggestion in invisible ink, but I guess we'd have to have the decoder too, so yeah, we might never it know. could get messy. What's this blank sheet of paper we received, Ablina? Um, anyway, please send us your suggestions, invisible or not. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the Underground Railroad, we have a great article on it called How the Underground Railroad Worked, and you can find it by searching for Underground Railroad on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.